Um, if I may start on a bit of a foreboding note, um, I, of course, receive a lot of things in the mail, invitations to do things, not because I'm popular, but because people probably go to the website and say, oh, that's the guy to send stuff to. So uh, I got this invitation in the mail, and it's, uh, there's this annual luncheon that they do in, in San Jose, and all the Bay Area pastors are invited, and it's put on by KFAX, which if you listen to Christian Talk Radio, that's the major uh, radio station in our area. And um, last year they invited us to something I wasn't able to go. So this year um, there's a, a speaker who's coming from, and if you know anything about um, big churches in the United States, this will ring a bell. Um, the speaker is Dr. Robert Jeffries, who um, is the teaching pastor and published author of First Baptist Dallas. At one point, that was, the, I believe, the largest Southern Baptist church uh, in America. It, it was, if not one of the largest churches, regardless of one's denomination. Uh, one of the most esteemed old preachers by the name of W.A. Criswell preached there and taught there for, for decades upon decades. So it's a church that has um, a kind of a, a renowned reputation. Billy Graham became a member there back in 1953. And so it's just this church that's kind of large on the scene. Well, that's the, the guy who's the pastor of that church is coming to speak to us in the, in the Bay Area which is a kind of a unique opportunity. Um, what that says to me is that he's kind of mainstream. He's not, he's not some obscure guy who's, you know, burning Korans in Florida. Uh, but what caught my attention in this invitation is there's this, there's this picture of the Statue of Liberty, kind of crooked, uh, with these brooding dark clouds and lightning in the back, and, and then in uh, capital letters, which you can't read because you can't see it, uh, are America's coming implosion. America's coming implosion. Now, there's a time when I would read a, a title like that and think, well, they're guys just being rhetorical, just overly sensational, um, probably trying to create an alarmist kind of title to get people fearful and want to listen to his message. And I've seen titles like this come from more obscure, like prof prophetic movements. But you know what? For the first time, I read that title, and I thought, you know what? That doesn't seem to me to be that far off. America's coming implosion. Of course, nobody can prognosticate or predict when or where or how, but I think most of us, we know it in our bones. We just sense an impending sense of the inside has been hollowed out, and at some point, things are going to implode, much like they did in the 5th century in Rome. It's just, it's just going to collapse. And then you look around, you know, the globe, and you're reading the paper, and you just realize, man, things aren't much better outside of our, our country either. You know, just, again, I'm always trying to keep my eyes on the global scene of, you know, this last week, it was, I didn't know this was going to happen, but Scotland voted to see if they would declare their independence from the United Kingdom. And um, it didn't pass, but barely. I mean, obviously there's some deep issues between Scotland and, and uh, the United Kingdom. And of course, we've been reading about and hearing about Ukraine and Russia, and there are, and, uh, um, there's rising tension between Hong Kong and Beijing. And of course, then there's this whole ISIS thing, right? Or whatever they choose to call themselves at the end of the day. I'm so confused by everything I read as to what they're actually called. With these little pockets of loyalists that kind of uh, make their way like little roots into countries all over the place. Uh, all that, to me, kind of spells that we're living in a powder keg. 
That's just kind of how it feels. Now, I don't say that to create a sense of alarm. I just, I, I, I think things are in massive upheaval, upheaval, and we sense it. And, and as, as Christians trying to figure out, you know, hey, how, how are we supposed to um, make sense, maybe not make sense of this, how are we supposed to um, approach this? I for, I, for one, think that, that these are exciting times in which to live. Exciting times for which to live, provided that we're prepared for it and, and we're being faithful in the present tense. Um, do you know, in the 5th century when, when Rome fell, after it had disintegrated for, for decades, you know who was left standing? It was the Christians. It was guys like St. Augustine who, in his writings, laid much of the foundation for Western civilization. It was Christians. It was, it was uh, monasteries that became the center of learning. It was Christian people. Uh, so I think it's exciting times for us to live as, as Christians, um, provided, again, that we're prepared. And I just have a heart to, um, for my own life and for my family and for this church, it's like making sure that we're, we're prepared for what God may bring our way. And even if it's not on some kind of a global level, it may, maybe it's just a personal level of life seems like it's coming apart sometimes and wondering how is it that I continue to run the race amidst the ruins of, of life or the world in which we live. And I do believe, uh, I never forgot what um, John Piper has drilled this in to my head through his books and also in an interview that I watched, in which he said to um, people, he says, you better prepare for suffering now, not while you're in it, because then it's too late. That's the wisdom of Proverbs. Proverbs 22, verse 3, I think is the Proverbs. says, the wise man, he sees the danger and he takes refuge. That is, he... He prepares himself for what he sees on the horizon. And the foolish or the simple man just kind of like la da da just kind of walks right into it and ends up completely uh, falling and stumbling. And I, I don't want to be one of those simpletons who's just, you know, not aware that there are things on the horizon. So how is it that you prepare yourself to be someone who runs, who remains faithful in the middle of a deteriorating world or um, life context? And I believe Isaiah chapter 40, 27 through 31, and actually, if you will, uh, the entire latter half of Isaiah, 40 to the end, 66, is given to answer that particular question. Now, it's worth noting that the historical context in which Isaiah was writing, somewhere between the 8th and 7th century BC, those were also times of massive upheaval, like the superpower um, of the day were, were, was, was the Assyrian Empire. And um, the Assyrians were known for being a, 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 a brutal people um, who would oftentimes fillet their, their, their enemies or behead them and impale them on a stick. Kind of makes the, the ISIS beheading look like kindergarten stuff compared to what the Assyrians used to do to their enemies. And at this point um, in Israel's history in which this was written, um, the armies had already moved through northern Israel. They had crushed the northern Ted tribes. And if you read the chapters immediately before Isaiah 36, 37, 38, 39, 36 in particular, and 37, you'll, you'll read about when these Assyrian armies laid siege to Jerusalem itself under King Hezekiah's rule. I mean, those, these were frightful times. These were uh, difficult times, uh, times in which a very, very bitter and brutal enemy was right at your doorstep. And it's in that context of, of upheaval and danger and um, enemies right on your front that this is written to God's people. Now, from what's said in Isaiah, it would seem that many people had lost faith, which explains why the Lord questions 
their view of him. Verse 27 opens with a question to the people of Israel, to the people who profess to believe in the Yahweh or God. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? The sense of that is just like the Lord is asking him, why is it that you say of me I don't see what you're doing, that I don't see your struggles or see your problems? As if I don't see the Assyrian army at your doorstep or I don't see the struggle in your life. Or that my right, that is my covenantal right of protection by my God, is being completely disregarded as if God has forgotten us. He simply doesn't look at my life. You find that same kind of sentiment and thoughts, maybe not expressed on the lips of God's people, but oftentimes in terms of our own feelings, like God just he doesn't really know where I'm at. Doesn't see the struggles that we have as parents. Doesn't see the struggles that we have in our jobs. Doesn't see the struggles we're having in our country. Like, maybe we're just hidden. Maybe he's, he's so concerned with the big things, he doesn't have time for the small things, like my life. Or maybe he just doesn't care. Verse 27 here expresses doubt. It is a, an expression of faithlessness, that God isn't really involved or care or doesn't see the specifics of our lives. And it's this kind of faithless doubt that happens when bad things come into God's people's life, if they're unprepared. It's like, wow, where's the Lord? I didn't expect things to get this bad. Maybe we're hidden from him. So how is it that you counteract this or, or so that you don't find yourself given to this faithless expression or doubt that maybe God doesn't see what's going on in my life or what's going on in our country? Um, and here is... I believe that the answer to that, the way in which God's people, God himself prepares his people. One, beginning in verse 28, he asks the question, and then he recounts for them the greatness of who he is. After, you know, the whole you know, maybe my way is hidden from God, my, my right is disregarded by, my, by God, he asked this. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord, Yahweh, is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Now let me pan back for a second, and then I'll come back to this. This whole chapter was written to show the incomparable greatness of who God is in comparison to everything else. So, who is God in comparison to the universe? God says, well, I can mark it off with a span of my hand, which means he is immensely greater, incomparable. Um, It's asked, can you compare him to the nations? Which the prophet says, no, they're like a drop from a bucket compared to the Lord, which means there's no comparison. The chapter compares him to the worthless and immovable idols, and there is no comparison to the gods of men versus Yahweh. It compares him to to the stars and the vast population within the universe. And, And the Lord's like, lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created all these? Me, who brings them out by name or by number, calling them all by name, and not one is missing. In other words, there's this vast knowledge and personal acquaintance with everything that exists as if it's not to be compared with even the populated universe. It's nothing compares with it. That's the chapter. 
And then right here, in kind of rapid succession, he's reminding us again who he is with four brief theological statements. He's the everlasting God. It has to do with time. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. That has to do with position, his sovereign creator. He does not faint or grow weary, which has to do with his unlimited power. And the last one, his understanding is unsearchable, which has to do with wisdom and knowledge. In all of those categories of time, position, power, and wisdom, these four statements declare God is boundless. He's recounting the greatness of who God is. Any one of those things is worthy of like ten sermons. It's reminded of God, his eternal nature, his sovereign position, his unlimited power, and the fact that his wisdom is beyond our greatest searchings. All of those things could take, you know, you could write a book about each one of those things because they're, they're part of, of the nature and character and attributes of the, this one that we worship. Now, the point is, more generally, without getting into, by the way, each one of these, at different points in a believer's life, becomes like that steel girder that you hold on to that enables you to continue to live and survive and, and run the race. Like, um, when you find yourself afraid because there's powers out there that you're helpless to control or do anything about, you remind yourself, the Lord... My Lord is the creator of the ends of the earth. That means that he has boundless, unlimited power. And, or when you find yourself like no, struggling with, Lord, I don't understand why things are the way they are, either in my life or the world. I don't understand it. I can't make any sense of it. We remind ourselves or we recount to ourselves that his understanding is unsearchable. I may not understand it. But the one whose knowledge and wisdom is unsearchable does. And so I can trust him with that. But you're recalling, you're recounting the great character of God in your mind. And that's what he's doing. He's recounting for them who he is. Now, there's, I can't stress the importance of how, how vital to God's people an accurate knowledge of God is. Now, someone might, might object and say, well, it's not really knowledge of God we need more of. We need more faith. True. But you can't believe what you don't know. You have to know that he's eternal. You have to know he created the world. It didn't come from nothing except by his hand. You have to know that his power is unending. He never gets tired of taking care of you. And his wisdom is unsearchable. You have to know this is the importance of a knowledge of God. And the reason I say that is because our culture tends towards emotions and tends towards action. And those are good things. Everyone wants to feel the joy of the Lord. I want to feel the joy of the Lord. We want to take action. We want to do creek cleanups and do alpha runs. But oftentimes at the expense of knowing, of knowing who God is. And at the expense of knowing who God is, this really turns into, I don't really know what to call it. It's It's, it's fictitious. That our feeling and our doing must flow out of an accurate knowledge of the greatness of God. And it's not just something you do once in a while. Oh, now I got it. It's like, no, it's recounted over and over again. It's like before you do anything, you have to have your soul filled with God. That's, that's the recounting of the greatness. You want to be prepared. We want to be prepared. It's going to require us 
to constantly recount in our own head. It's called theology, right? Just a fancy word. Recall in our head, based upon what the Bible has revealed, this is who God is. And I don't care how powerful all the League of Nations are in our world. They are absolutely nothing in comparison to the incomparable greatness of my God. That's what it declares, all right? Man, you know how good and satisfying it is just to rehearse that in your mind? You go for a run sometime and just like, man, the Lord, Yahweh is the everlasting God. Woo! It's awesome. You know, you're just taking it in. Next thing you know, you ran a five-minute mile because you're so excited. Recounting the greatness of God. That's, that's part one. By the way, just as, uh, it just, when I read this, it reminded me, or this point reminded me of 2 Kings 6, in which Elisha, the prophet, he's in the town of Dothan with his servant, and, um, and there's all these Syrian armies that want Elisha, because a prophet is a powerful enemy to unbelievers. And, uh, and all these armies gather around the town of Dothan, and, and some of you know the story, it's a great story. And, um, and the servant goes out and sees all these chariots and, and comes back to Elisha and says, Alas, Elijah, what, what do we do? We're surrounded. And, and Elisha says, uh, Lord, open his eyes. And the servant looks with new eyes, eyes of faith, and he sees mountains full of chariots of fire. And he recognizes at that point, I have nothing to worry about. That is what happens when we recount and we know and see with the eyes of the heart the greatness of God. But then flip that, and one of the things that attracts me to this passage is here are all these lofty truths about God just set in kind of boom, 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 four, four right in a row. And, and the very next thing you find is the tenderness with which God cares for his people. And this is Another way that we prepare is realizing the personalized grace of God or the personalization or the individual care. I had meticulous down here. I just so many different ways of giving an adjective to this. It's just look at this. After saying he's the everlasting God, creator of the ends of the earth, verse 29, he gives power to the faint and to him. It doesn't say to them. It says to him. It boils down to an individual who has no might. To him who has no might, he, the everlasting God, creator of the ends of the earth, increases strength. How specific, how particular, how granular, how microscopic is his care for the one who has absolutely not an ounce of strength left, it says to him, who has no might, he increases strength. That's grace. That's God giving something to someone who doesn't deserve it, a gift of his strength. Contrasting it with, with the natural power of youth and young men, even youth shall fall and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. There's limitations to human power and strength. They, they do come to an end, unlike the Lord who never faints or grows weary. But they who wait for the Lord, this is part... Every Awana cubby learns. Um, they who wait for the Lord, Yahweh, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I just am amazed at, that, that, at the, the contrast of God's lofty greatness to his particular personalized grace to care for his individual people. That means that that opening faithless statement, my way is hidden from God, is completely false. 
The fact of the matter is, is, as the song says, his eye is on the what? On the sparrow. If he sees a sparrow, he sees you. He sees your life. He sees where you've been. He sees where you're going. He sees your failures. He sees your flaws, your inadequacies. And the God that I know who gave his life for us on the cross loves us anyway. And he has cared. He cares about the particulars of our path and our life. He gives strength to the one who has no might. Now, I think sometimes the way I picture God looking down on planet Earth is like, like us looking down on an anthill, you know? You, you really can't make out the individual ants. You just, you just see the ground moving, you know? We don't care about ants. We just step on them, don't even think twice about it. Um, can you imagine in your, having the mind as a human to just go, hey, <laughs> that little guy there, I'm just going to call him Scooter. That guy has a broken leg. Meanwhile, the whole mound is moving. And then let's just pretend they're non-biting ants. And you just help him into the colony, back into the mound. Can't imagine ever doing that, human to an anthill. God looks on planet Earth, and I don't know how many billions of humanoids he sees scurrying here and there all over the Earth. But he looks down and says, oh, there's Dave. Dave's at the end of his rope. But Dave has a mustard seed of faith, and he trusts me. And you know what? I'm going to help Dave back into the colony. Like, that's, that's, that's the Lord. That's the amazing particularity of his grace in our lives. And to, to know that he is, he's there. Um, Most of the time, we fail to believe that because we fail to open our eyes. Our heads are so swallowed up by our own emotions or our own problems that we fail to get out of ourselves and see how God is continuing to provide each and every step of the way, you know? This last week was a pretty exhausting week for me. Um, I'm playing mom and dad at home right now. And uh, so Thursday, I got home after soccer practice at 7. And, uh, and someone had delivered a meal. And at that moment, uh, I was exceedingly thankful. And it wasn't just that I received, we received a meal from a friend. This was a personal gift of God's grace who's saying, I got my eye on you. And you look around and you realize that just in the right moment of time, when you're depleted, God brings a friend. God sends a phone call, sends a meal, a piece of good news. All of that, if you, we have eyes to see it, is God reaching down and touching him who has no might to increase strength through the instruments of his grace. We have eyes to see people, regardless of whether we see it or not, we're here because God took care of us today, yesterday, and the week before. And to continue to recognize and realize that sense that he is here with us. And he can be relied upon. Not just in the big ways, but also the particular ways. And that, that is also something that will help us, prepare us, for when things start to fall apart. So I know you're here. This is, again, Theology 101. 
But it's an important theology 101 that you have to come back to over and over and over again, that God sees exactly where I'm at, and he cares about the details of my life, especially when you're going through those tough times. So that's a second way of preparing God's people. I do see you, and I do care. And then the last little piece here has more to do with um, our hearts. We've looked at God's greatness. That uh, We have to recount it constantly. We have to realize God's day-by-day particular microscopic grace in our lives, that he is taking care of us. And then the last one has to do with the nature of our hearts. Nurture within us, our souls, a humble patience for God to act. A humble patience for God to act. There's, there's certain qualities of the one that God gives strength to. One is, is that they have no strength, which means they're weak. Now, now this could be taken literally to mean absolutely physically weak and exhausted, bedridden, and you can't do anything. Or it can mean something that David meant when he says, Incline your ear to me, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and weak. Is that a weak person in this understands the severe limitations of human power. And in fact, we are a very weak people. And I think that's what's in view is that those who truly know that they have need are desperate for strength from God, who have to rely on them, not themselves. Because when we rely upon ourselves, we end up like the youths and the young men who fall exhausted. And the second quality is is that they wait. They're willing to wait for the Lord. So there's that sense of humble acknowledgement of our weakness in conjunction with, with willingness to wait. And you know, I meditate on this idea of wait, and you know there's at least two things that have to be there for a person to want to wait. One is belief, and the second is, is that idea of humility. Have you ever pulled up at a red light in your car, and it was red? And then the rest of the lights all changed, but yours didn't. And then it went back again, and multiple times it shifted, and yours stayed red the whole time. As if those little sensors underneath the asphalt didn't actually go off, And so you're just waiting there, like five different rotations and and no light. Well, what do you do at that point? I'm not asking the ethical question here. (laughs) Do you run the red light? (laughs) That's brilliant. That's brilliant, Sean. (laughs) This guy is a passionate evangelizer, and that's so you. Just roll down your window. Me, if I failed to believe... I like your answer better than what I'm going to give. <laughs> if I don't believe that that light's going to ever turn green, I'm going to go through it. Sorry, I'm just saying. That's happened to me, man. I probably waited for 15 minutes one time for that light. No other cars around, of course. Just like, all right, this thing doesn't know I'm here. I'm going to be here till next week. <laughs> Nobody around to witness to either. <laughs> so... <laughs> my, my point not to raise an ethical controversy here, is simply to say when we fail to believe that something's not going to happen, we won't wait for it. But when we believe it's going to happen, we're willing to wait. There has to be belief, which is why it says that he gives strength to those who wait because they're willing to believe that God is true to his word. He's going to show up. He's going to take care of it. He's going to bring the final resolution, and so you're willing to wait because you believe. A failure to believe will will result in frustration, and you'll take matters into your own hands, and you will run the red light. 
That's how it works. Belief that God is true to his word enables one to wait. And that takes a lot of humility to say, okay, I'm going to put my desires on hold. Because you know what? When um, <laughs> I also thought about how pride and impatience go together, you know? You're at Safeway, and they don't have a, your little uh, self-checkouts there, you know? Not just, if you work at Safeway, I love Safeway. Um, but, you know, and you just have a, have a, have a, have a um, loaf of bread, and there's this big, long line of 15 people, only one checker. Those are frustrating moments for me. It's like, all I have is a loaf of bread. And the manager can't see that there's like 15 closed other checkout places. There's only one. Like, my, my kids are going to starve before I get home. That's what you're thinking, right? That kind of, I mean, I'm overdoing it a little bit, but that's kind of how you feel. And, and, and at that moment, your frustration and your lack of patience is because it has interfered with your agenda, which is primarily about who? About me. Well, here, here's the thing is that, you know, we're not the center of God's universe. And the, the first rule of wisdom is the fear of the Lord to recognize that the world does not revolve around me. It revolves around his will, who, again, has unsearchable wisdom and unlimited power. So that means to have the humility to say, okay, I do have these agendas and plans. Obviously, Lord, these are not in line with what you want. And so what do I do? You humbly put them aside and say, okay, I'm waiting. And you know, when that happens, and I don't know how to describe this, there's a shift in the soul that takes place when you go from being preoccupied with your own way and you're willing to shift it and trust the Lord. There's just this undescribable sense of of peace. It's like someone actually, you've actually shifted it to the shoulder of another person that you trust, and, and there's a sense of peace and joy that comes with that. And, and that's where the Lord wants us, and that's a place, of, that's a place of, of rest and peace. It's a place that you find strength, and I think that's where the strength comes from, is there's that shift that takes place from my own shoulders to the shoulders of God, and I trust you with this, and I set my agendas aside. set my agendas aside. And sometimes God puts us in places to bring us to the end of, our, end of ourselves so that we can learn that truth. How many of you have like, has God put you in a place where you beat your head against the wall trying to change something that you think needs to be changed only to find yourself repeatedly disappointed, discouraged, powerless? I have. And, and, and as soon as I'm at the place where I'm like, Lord, I can't do this anymore. Like, I, I just can't do this anymore. I hear his voice tell me, because this is the scripture. Now you're right where I want you. I needed to show you the limitations of your own human power so that you'd learn to trust me. What an amazing shift, though. I don't know why it takes so long sometimes to realize that God, in bringing difficult circumstances that feel like beating your head against a wall, whether it's in parenting or whether it's at your job or whatever it is, even in your own life, it's like he's bringing you to the end of your own human power because you're still trusting in it, and he wants you to bow and shift it to him. And then we find strength, and it's so ironic that we find strength. I don't know... when this is going to happen. I'm pretty sure the end of the Bible tells us that it will happen. And if it doesn't 
happen in our lifetime on a global scale, then certainly God's going to have moments where our life feels like it's coming apart. And the thing is, is that when we're willing to recount the greatness of our God, realize that he's taking care of us each day by his grace, and we're willing to humble our hearts in patient faith for him to act, then the text tells us we find strength to walk and to run and to soar with eagles. That, I think, is one of the ways, or three different ways, in which God would have us prepare. All right? I pray that you take this to heart. This is Isaiah 40, 27 through 31. It's not the words of Dan. These are the voice. This is the voice of the Lord speaking to you. Father, grant us grace, grant us strength, grant us belief, both in your word and your promises, and in your great and awesome character. We thank you for all that you are for us. Help us each day to daily recount the greatness of our God, that your grace meets us where we're at, and that we can trust you in humble patience. In Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand and join us?